listening to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with host Shereen Rice on the CWR Talk Network. Good evening, this is Shereen Rice of Making a Difference About Domestic Abuse. My goal for this show is to educate and help in the healing journey for those that are suffering from domestic abuse. If you'd like to call in, actually you can't call in, I am actually... (laughs) Uh, pre-recording this so uh, so you can't call in tonight I'm sorry <laughs> but you can get a hold of me if you'd like to call uh, email me you may sure do that at shereen cwr at gmail.com let me spell that out to you s-h-a-r-e-e-n-e c-w-r at gmail.com I would love to hear from you I want to do a shout out tonight to my council my domestic violence council um, Lisa, Carolyn and Brian they're working their little tails to the bone right now because we're going to be having a domestic violence conference in just a couple of weeks June 7th and 8th in Ivins, Utah hope you can join us uh, if you're listening tonight, uh, my show can also be heard on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play if you subscribe to those services. If you want a direct link to those services, you may go to the CWR homepage on the website cwrtalknetwork.com and click on the logo for those services. If at any time you experience a trigger by this topic, please call the national hotline at 1 800 799 SAFE or 1 800 799 97233. Okay, we'll be right back from our public service announcement. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by FeedThePig.org. Well, I finally did it. I improved my credit score. You're kidding, right? Uh, no. How are we supposed to be the bad boys of electrosynth pop if you're out there being responsible? The band is about to be discovered. This is our year. Uh, yeah, you've been saying that for a while now. You think anyone in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was worried about their credit score? I never really thought that Of we were... course they weren't. Rock stars aren't supposed to think about that kind of stuff. We're supposed to think about how many guitars we've smashed, write aggressively sensitive power ballads, start questionable fashion trends, tragically break up and blame creative differences. All right, all right, just... I thought maybe it was time to take control of my finances, you know? Start using a budget. Get out of debt. Set some goals. A budget? Debt? Set some goals? Listen, I knew that we'd have our creative differences, but I was hoping they'd involve a little more scandal. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Making a Difference About Domestic Violence and Abuse with your host, Shereen Rice, on the CWR Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. This is Shereen, and I, I'm getting some feedback, so hold on one second. Okay, um, I have an awesome person on tonight to uh, share with you. His name is Stan Pate, and he is a member of the USF uh, TR 
rifle team. And I'm sure Stan's going to explain that to me in just a minute, as well as sponsored competitor for several major companies. He is a three-time world champion as part of the U.S. rifle team. While participating in in three world championships, he is a five-time individual medal winner at 800 through 1,000 yards. He has competed in matches around the world and is a match and medal winner as he competed on behalf of the U.S. in other countries. He is the first person to be recognized as internationally distinguished in the world of FTR class. So, Stan, you're definitely going to have to explain that one to me. Competitions, (laughs) (laughs) scoped, uh, target rifle, having set numerous uh, national records as a long-range shooter. He has created a boyhood dream into a reality. Dream-making is the topic uh, that he'll be discussing at the Southern Utah Domestic Violence Conference, and he is a survivor of domestic uh, violence himself and U.S. Marine veteran. He has brought his dreams to fruition and wants to share how he integrated his abilities to follow his dreams Despite his domestic violence experience, Stan is an inspiring motivational speaker where he travels the world sharing his experiences of life and following those experiences through service as a Marine and ultimately a world champion in long-range rifles. Welcome, Stan. (laughs) Shereen, that was a whole lot to just say that I was one of those fortunate folks to to survive and live my dream. I know. But thank you for all that. I thought, you know, I'll just read his bio, and then I'm I'm going on, I'm like, you know what, I have not asked him what these things mean, I just figured people would know, but I don't, so the, uh, the USF um, firearms, I'm thinking, and then TR is, uh, uh, FTR stands for uh, scoped target rifle, TR stands for target rifle, and and the, the, the person who had, who founded the discipline was a guy named George Parkinson. He was from Canada. And so the F is actually just a tribute to him from around the world for starting the discipline. And so a scope target rifle is what it stands for. It's usually for us guys when we get to an age where we can't shoot the iron sights anymore, we put a scope on our target rifle and we continue shooting. And that's that's where I found myself. Oh, cool. So, well, we're yep. first going to start out um, in your uh, how you got to the point that you are right now. And I know I know you grew up in a a little town. Mine was actually smaller, but <laughs> <laughs> but well, let's start well, I, there. <laughs> I, I said I grew mine. Up in a little... Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I that's okay. I said mine was a little bit smaller than yours. Uh, boy, that had to be small. I mean, my whole school system had 175 kids, K through 12. Yeah, I think Stan, I had a graduating class of 23. <laughs> uh, we we went to the same school. I know, I know. But Azalea would, is a little smaller than Glendale. That's all I'm saying. It is. It actually is. It's actually <laughs> you go from there to the to our school system, our, the Glendale school system, anyway. Yeah. But what a great little place. It had its disadvantages, but it had its advantages as well. Yeah, we were growing up in the, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, a little bit of logging town in the mountains of southwestern Oregon. It was beyond beautiful uh, just to hang out at. Yeah. Yeah, but, it was. And so continue sharing about – I'm sorry. I hope I haven't interrupted you again. Um, just continue no. sharing about your, your youth and uh, – growing up in that little tiny logging town. 
<laughs> well, in, in some ways, some ways we had, you know, I had the idyllic youth. I'm, uh, growing up, my most of my neighborhood. Uh, I understand that our family is is a, kind of a mix of Choctaw and, and Native American, and, and it's basically they're all from Arkansas, all the immediate family. And yeah. so growing up, there was that whole different value that you would only get from somewhere like Arkansas, or Oklahoma, Tennessee, you know, in that country where kids were expected to uh, grow up a little bit quicker, be a little more responsible. So I grew up, you know, camping and tracking and fishing and and learning how to shoot. And in fact, it was my sister that taught me how to shoot. That's how, how much it was ingrained in us. So I grew up in the outdoors and going to a small school where you knew everybody and playing every sport I could play and, and, uh, just enjoying the small town life because they didn't know any better. But also later, I learned that I, I had a lot of advantages that others may not have in the bigger school. Um, but this is probably where the, you know part of the topic is going to be. I, when I grew up, the the downside to all this is I I had a dad that you know I learned a great deal from, but you know he was an alcoholic. He's passed away some years ago now, and uh, when he would drink that. We knew that we were going to get beat up before the evening was over. Mm. It was actually, yeah, it was the way it was. It was uh, in afterwards. Excuse me. Afterwards, we'd often put it off to uh, that was the time, or you know, it was this or was that. And in truth, it wasn't. It was just uh, he was an alcoholic. His, you know, his mom was kind of mean, and so he—that's the way he knew how to parent. And apparently, his upbringing was the same way. So it was like a uh, generational curse, if you will. So, yeah, we got to the point where we just accepted it as fact. And when Dad would start drinking, he didn't drink all the time. But when he did drink, he drank to excess, and we knew we were going to get pounded on. And uh, and, and so with after we all left Glendale or, or left, you know, moved out of the house, I think we actually, all the, us kids, there's five of us, we actually – got together and decided that this stopped with us. We were not going to do this anymore. And, and uh, we didn't realize it, but we were being pretty progressive with that, that we decided if somebody got that mad uh, over something, they could call any of us and we'd drop what we were doing and come and give them a timeout. That's kind of in a nutshell where all this you know, started as it relates to, to your show. And yeah, it, yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a lot to this. There was uh, it got pretty, pretty intense. I mean, we went through the, the times where you uh, we couldn't change clothes for PE class. They still had PE classes back in those days. I understand most schools don't now, but we couldn't change clothes or we couldn't go to school because there was bruising from here to there. And, and and even in school, if I got in a fight at school, which you know, especially at that time, boys were in a, you know, had a tendency to do on on occasions, not often. And I got pounded on when I got home. Oh no! And what That's did your dad do for an occupation? Uh, he was uh, a graded lumber at a at a uh, lumber mill, and then when he got home in the evening, he would do do uh, mechanic work for people in the community. So. Oh, oh, cool. So he, I was thinking he was just a mechanic, but he was he worked at the mill then. And I worked at the one just in the next town over, but uh, and, and that was kind of the other part of it. He was he was pretty well a control freak. You could talk with any of the kids in our family. He would 
we were always on a slim budget for eating or doing this or doing that. And, uh, but we didn't know it, but he was, you know, putting money away every month and, and, uh, just kind of hoarding it, if you would, I guess. And, uh, so there was, there was many facets to the controlling and to the, uh, to, to the domestic violence and abuse, if you will. I kind of categorize them as three separate things all rolled into one, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so how did, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, I think that's really awesome that you and your siblings got together and decided that the abuse was going to stop with you. That is definitely um, forward thinking um, for what, what happens today, you know. Um, but let me ask you this. Um how did that shape your life up until you went into the military? I'm not sure what age you went into the military. Um, how did that shape your life a little bit? Oh, it made me a kind of a harder individual. We were raised with the, the men don't show their feelings. You know, you don't, uh, you know, don't necessarily admit that you're wrong on anything. It, at least that was the example we had. And if somebody bows up to you, you don't have to talk about it. Just smack them. I mean, there was, it was, uh, it was a different way of coming up. It was a much more aggressive way of coming up. But uh, I do have to say that uh, in, in response to your comment, that one thing that I learned slash we learned is at some point, once you realize what the problem is, if you allow it to keep controlling you, then you're using it at some point as a crutch versus using it as a jumping off place to better yourself. It doesn't mean you get over it, but it means that you learn to understand it and to make changes in your own life where it has a minimal effect on you. You know, I really like how you said that. So what you're talking about is being a victim of domestic violence doesn't mean you have to continue being a victim. You can be a survivor and a thriver. Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's my whole story. My, the song, the, the song, there's, I've got a song and, I, and I'm not, uh, and I don't agree with maybe with Garth Brooks's politics and stuff like that, but I agree with the song, the, the dance. I mean, I could have missed the, oh, I yeah. could have, uh, yeah, I could have, uh, I could have missed the, missed the pain, but I would have had to miss the dance. And, you know, and I don't know if we'll get to it or not, but I got hurt pretty bad in the Marine Corps. And I consider that the best day of my life because it was a turning point in my life where I had to learn to set goals uh, both short, medium, and long-term goals, and how to how to establish a dream, and then absolutely fight for it to get back on my feet again. Well, the mm-hmm. same thing can be said about domestic violence, and, and the way this is. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I, there was never any praise at the house. Mom was quiet, and a, a lot of women of that era were, especially coming from that part of the country. My, like I say, my folks came from the mountains of Arkansas, and. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of praise. And then, uh, you know, when I talk, I, I use some examples. Uh, I had a, a grade school teacher and I was a kid. I don't remember what I did, but, uh, and this is another form of maybe not domestic, but abuse at any rate. I was a kid and I used to always sit in the right front corner of the classroom because that was where I said, if anybody that studied in this to know that men tend to be territorial, even as boys, we, we kind of pick a spot and then that's our spot, if you will. But I sat in the right front corner of the class and I don't know what I did. I don't remember what I did to, to set this teacher off. Obviously I did something, 
But I can remember him coming over to my desk and, and putting his hands on both sides of his desk, and I, or my desk, excuse me, and I can still uh, remember the smell of his breath as he got down and told me what a disgusting little boy I was and how oh, I would no, never no. accomplish anything. Oh, yeah. You know, that was in for decades, literally, that had a profound effect on my life. What, it, what grade was, were you in, if you don't mind me asking? I don't remember, but it was, mm-hmm. you know, second, third, fourth, something like that. I was oh pretty young. Well, that's what made it devastating is because teachers are smart, right? And I'm not picking on teachers. Yeah. But uh, the the power of the words that come out of your mouth can be very profound, especially when somebody hangs on every word you say. And as a kid, you're, of course, your your teachers are smart. You look up to them. Right, right. And, uh, yeah, smart. They're the ones that rule the roost uh, because you spend eight hours a day with them, right? Of course, of course. Well, it's the same with your parents. So right. the, the domestic abuse doesn't have to be domestic violence, although there's many right. levels of violence. But right. the, the domestic abuse, if you're getting belittled all the time, what's that do to your psyche? It, it establishes right. your self-expectations. Yeah, and actually uh, psychological abuse is far worse than physical abuse ever thought of being. Absolutely, I agree. So, uh, did you ever do anything like go shooting to avoid your dad's wrath each night, or or how did that work? Well, and again, it's important to understand it didn't happen every night. It uh, it, it didn't. I shot all the time. I like I said, my sister taught me and my twin brother how to shoot. And from the time we were eight, we had our own pellet guns and. And when we turned 10, we got our own 22 rifles, and we were very well trusted. I mean, stuff that you would never let the kid do today because somebody yeah. would probably arrest you. We were allowed to camp by ourselves at 10 years old with guns. Wow. And, yeah. And now, you, now you'd be arrested for it. So this wasn't <laughs> something that happened every day, but, but we were um, – we did have ways to kind of escape if, you know, if it was on a weekend or something like that, and, and we didn't have chores to do. Uh then we could, you know, we could get gone. Uh, my brother came back from Vietnam during one of one of the episodes and kind of toned everything down, kind of saved us a lot of what they went through, but it still, it still got pretty intense at times. Yeah. Yeah. I can possibly imagine, but yeah, you're right. It's kind of funny what we used to be able to do when we were younger. We can't even begin to fathom doing that any longer. Okay. So after high school, uh, how old were you when you went into the military? I was, I think, 20 when I went in, May of so May of 1980. Awesome. So you waited a couple couple years after high school, three or four years after high school then? Oh, and, yeah. Um, yeah, so you were a little bit more mature. That was good. Um, and so share with us your experiences of maybe why you went in. Well, they'd taken the hostages over in Iran. And uh, I was living up in Yaktat, Alaska, and the the news at that time was shipped in. So all our our television station only played, I think, for six hours a day or eight hours a day. It was a small fishing village. And so the news, when we got it, was, you know, several weeks old. And uh, so it came in and played, and they'd taken the hostages in Iran, and it just really infuriated me. And I stewed on it, stewed on it, stewed on it, and then... came down and joined the Marine Corps. And uh, that's how I got, that's how I got in the service. I just got angry. I mean, it was a pretty rude awakening coming out of the, 
out of a fishing village and then getting your hair cut and, and everybody's <laughs> yelling at you. It's my first my first day. I was thinking, what in the heck have I done? And uh, it didn't get better for about three months. Oh wow. Oh, it's that's the length of Marine Corps boot camp. It was uh, it was a life changing experience, and I think actually for the better for the most part. That's wonderful. And uh, <clears throat> okay, so you had your domestic abuse uh, somewhat behind you. You um, worked at some different jobs, and then you decided to go into the military because you were angry about the hostages, which we all were, of course, at that time, and. Um, Share some of your experiences in the military that shaped you. Well, it, it sounds so simplistic when you say it, though. <laughs> there was, a, and there was a lot going on, but it's much too much to go in, into with a in, in a radio show. It's uh, there right, was a right, lot right. of things. I kind of, you know, I kind of picked on the teachers earlier, but it was actually a, another teacher, my typing uh, teacher, actually, uh, Mr. Rick Wright, who was also the track coach, and and he's uh, gained a, a bit of fame. Uh, he was the coach for Rosa Gutierrez that was uh, was uh, competing all over the planet at the time. He he traveled with her. He was quite the guy. I mean, just an amazing man and teacher. But it was one day, um, I liked to run. I, I used to like to run. I, and after I got hurt, that was kind of pretty much over. But I used to love to run, but I'm not built as a runner. I'm short legs, long-waisted, and, and so as a result, I'm not really quick. I'm not really fast. I just like to do it. I used to love to run till you got that burn in your side, that little hitch, and then you work through it, and then you get that second wind, and you could just seem to run for hours. I used to love that. Yeah. But apparently one day one day I was looking uh, rather frustrated, and I probably was uh, because, like I said, I wasn't that fast or quick. But he came up to me and said, so, Pate, uh, what are you going to quit to? Well, I was a kid. I didn't get what he was saying or asking, and that I didn't understand. So I looked at him and said something like, "Mr. Wright, I'm, I'm not going to quit." Went on up. I've pretty well sucked at quitting my whole life. I just I never have been good at it, and I never never <laughs> saw a reason to get good. But good. Uh, it, I went on. Excuse me, and I never thought about that again for years, actually. And uh, and so this is, is and this actually comes around to part of what I, I talk about, but. Anyway, it was we're talking about the influence of of, uh, of what people say on you. Well, and where I was at and what I was doing is kind of irrelevant. But let me say that I was with the the rest of the squad of Marines, and we were in a pretty bad situation, and had been for a matter of days. And we were trying to get out, trying to get away, and and we were just whipped. We we were pretty well out of everything and just tired to the bone. And we were perimetered up. It's one of those situations where, you know, if anybody got up and moved, everybody would get up. But you could tell everybody was thinking kind of the same thing that, you know, this probably pretty much it. We're not going to quit. Marines don't do that. But we, you know, we're going to we're going to take it out to the end. But uh, this could be it. And it was, you know, we sitting there, and I, it was so clear, it was just absolutely clear. I heard right in my ears, in my right ear. So, so, Pete, what are you going to quit to? And, I mean, it was just like he was standing there talking, and two things happened. First of all, I immediately got what he was trying to tell me back in school, and that was you've got to have something better off than where you're at to quit too, or how can you quit? It makes no sense. Okay, right. and, and that was a that was a revelation for me. The other thing is I stood up and turned around because it was that clear. 
Everybody got up in 30 minutes. We were out of there. And I guess that's part of part of my whole overall message is, you know, there's I have many parts to it. But one of it, one of the things is the power of the words that come out of your mouth, especially if you're a person that uh, you've had to been a, a victim of domestic violence or you've witnessed it. Uh, but even if you're just what you would consider a normal Joe, I've never met a single person anywhere. And I know some pretty egotistical people that has the same self-image that somebody else has of them. And, but if you are a, a victim of something like this, or you're a survivor of anything, you have a power in your, in the words that come out of your mouth that oftentimes, in fact, I'll say almost every time you have the ability to either build somebody up or absolutely destroy them with a single utterance. And, and for the examples, I mean, I have the one teacher that, told me what a disgusting little boy I was. And obviously it still affects me if I can still remember the smell of his breath. But for years I would get on the cusp of winning. And then I would start thinking about this, this event. And my conscious mind would tell me, you know, it was, it was a bunch of garbage. And I could logically say that, but my subconscious mind, which is actually stronger than your conscious mind would, you know, clutch onto it as being a fact. And I would start losing sleep and having nightmares. I'd lose my edge and I wouldn't win. And but right. then I had another teacher that with an even shorter conversation saved everybody. Now what you know, you know, look at the power of those two words. They were two people I absolutely trusted and believed. They were teachers. Right. But one built one built up, one built down. You know, if you have a story like I have the story of uh, you know, getting getting spanked slash beaten. I understand I I'm not necessary against a, getting a swat or two if, if a child is served, but there's a way. And I mean, some people may not agree with me and that's okay. But nobody has to agree with me, but, uh, but a beating is a beating. And domestic violence is, you know, whether it's mental or physical is domestic violence. Right. But if you survive something like that and like, uh, like we have, then you have, I'll say even a power, even a responsibility to say something and you have, the power with just the smallest of utterances to help how many people now you have a radio show, you have a voice. I'm sorry. I'm almost preaching right now. No, you're good. Um, and I do like that. What you're saying. So continue on. No, that's, that's, that, that's it. It's one of the things I talk about when I go to schools, I, I love to go to, to primarily high schools and talk to kids yeah, and, and the 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 topic of of it is uh, my goals actually are to inspire uh, by using examples from my own life. As you know, if I can do it, you can do it, uh, and to enable, give you the tools. You know, through uh, talking about how to dream build because nobody really teaches how do you build dreams. How do you make a dream so vivid that you can taste it, you can smell it. You know how many tens of thousands of times I pictured being on a podium before I was on a podium. I mean, I'd lived that. I could, I could hear the anthem. I could see the flag. I could feel yeah. the weight of the metal. I could smell the smell. I could do all of that. When, when I, when I stood on my first podium, it was, it was like I'd been there before only so much more. It's, so how do you build that in a person? How do you create this dream? Because without a dream, you're not going to accomplish anything. You might accomplish little bitty things here and there that are easy, but there won't be a driving force to create something in your life better. Okay, and then 
the next thing is is to teach goal setting. How do you set short term, uh, medium range, and long term goals? You know, and you got to put dates on them. You got to talk with people. There's steps in there that you have to do to commit yourself to it. And what do you do when you accomplish these goals? How do you celebrate? How do you set up for the next one? It there's there's many steps to this. And for yeah. for me, it, it was what I learned also is you can set those short term and medium range goals and even long range goals, but you need to be ready for them to morph into something better and bigger. You never want to settle for less ever. And sometimes understand sideways can be a step forward, but you all you always have to have something better than where you're at to move to, or you can't move, you can't quit. Right. And so that's what your your goal was to continue moving forward. How did you get involved with the the U.S. Uh, rifle uh, team? Oh, it's and it's a it's a longer story. I learned, you know, I grew up shooting. A lot of kids from Arkansas did, and even though I was, you know, me and my twin brother were born and raised in Glendale, we, um, they, um, and my family was from Arkansas. My sister, and two older brothers, and and my parents. So we were raised shooting. We just knew firearms from a from a pretty young age, and uh, so when I went to the Marine Corps, uh, making a long story short, I I did really good at the at the rifle range, I, and I actually did pretty exceptional at the rifle range, and uh, it got noticed. And as a result, making a long story short, uh, I ended up on the second uh, Marine Air Wing Rifle and Pistol Team, which is the home for the uh, off season off season home for the Marine Corps team. And that's where I started shooting, then shooting for the Marine Corps, and and then uh, after, yeah, after I got hurt and got out and all that, it was I kept shooting first on a state team and then college team, and and it just kept competing, and eventually, I uh, I got to shoot on on one of the Goodwill teams, and then everything progressed after that until uh, in uh, well, in 2003 I approached Savage Arms about. Uh, sponsoring a team and fortunately for me and us they did because that gave me the the financial backing and, and the ability to con- to continue shooting because i couldn't afford to do it and then in 2007 i uh, got picked up on the u.s uh, rifle team and it's it's important to understand that at that point i had achieved my goals because since the time i was eight years old i knew i was going to be one of the best in the world but that was right. my goal I, uh, it never was to be the best. It was to be one of the best. And as far as I was concerned, when I got picked up on on the U.S. team, I had achieved that goal. Yeah. And so when I, when I went to the to the worlds, I hope I'm not getting carried away here. Is, is it okay to continue on? Yeah, continue on. It's great. Okay. Well, when I and to in so when I got picked up on the U.S. team, I had a responsibility uh, because the team was was composed to. Uh, to shoot in the world championships that were going to be held in Bisley, England in 2009. So uh, in 2009, when we traveled to England, I was more than blown away as probably everybody else was. And you can't believe how heavy that big USA on your back really gets when you're walking around and you realize that everybody in the world is watching you because you represent your country. And so when I went there, my big... My big dream at that point, not really a dream, but but hope or expectation of myself was not to embarrass myself or my country. And so I had perhaps a little less pressure on me than some of the other guys, but I had the match of a lifetime. I, I ended up uh, taking two goals of silver and the overall bronze in the individual, then we won both team matches. 
uh, and busy, so I, I was over my head. But more important than the medals, actually, to me, was, was what happened to me during that time. And, and nobody can prepare you for having a medal like that or having it hanging around your neck and the anthems and the, and the podiums and the people standing up for something you did. It will, if it doesn't change your life, I'm not sure you're human anymore. It, uh, yeah. it, it, one second, it feels like your chest is going to burst out. I mean, your heart's going to burst out of your chest. And the next second is the most humbling thing you can imagine. And the next second you're waiting for the other shooter drop. Did somebody make a mistake and they're going to find a mistake or the next thing is, what do I do now? And it's just all over the place. But one thing that happened to me, and it's a key to where I'm at now, is in that little, I don't know, what, three-minute ceremony, two-minute ceremony, whatever it is like that, is it all of a sudden became crystal clear to me, literally all the hundreds of people it took to get me to that point. And, and here's the key is when I come back to you know the value of the words that come out of your mouth, yeah, I can literally remember, I don't remember how many people it was, but I can remember literally hundreds of people who said this little nice thing when I needed to hear it, or they gave me an opportunity I hadn't quite earned yet, or they did something because their belief in me was bigger than my own self-belief at that point. And they, each one of them got me to the next step, to the next step, to the next step, to the next step, and, uh, and eventually got me to the world championships in Bisley, England, where I'm allowed to wear this this big medal, and I'm receiving these accolades. So, it, in a way, it's kind of like the guy you you uh, you see when he's getting a, a big medal, and he said, "This medal's not for me; it's for all the guys that gave it all to get this medal." Yeah, that guy's telling you the gospel truth. It's not you know when you get something like that, if you think it's all yours, you probably need to do a little introspection. Because I realized for the first time that it wasn't me. It's not all me. It's part of me. But it's yeah. all these people that got me to that point. And, and let me ask you this, Jan, um, since a lot of people won't wear medals. But is it not the fact that you accomplished one of your ultimate goals that gave you that inner excitement or uh, that, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it was a it was a double edged sword. I got I got to tell you. I mean, I was blown away because I'd worked at this goal for literally decades. When I was right. a kid, you know, I told people I was going to do this and do that, and of course, I got a lot of ridicule for that. But uh, I didn't know it, but that was one of the secrets. But uh, it, yeah, and when you accomplish something like that, it blows your mind. I was I described myself as brain damaged for quite a while after that because. I just I couldn't seem to form coherent thoughts or words for a while. I was just completely blown away. But the other side of it was is uh, it scared the daylights out of me because I didn't have a goal for after the goal. Uh, right. And so I learned I learned a valuable life lesson that you don't necessarily want to have. In fact, I recommend you don't have one goal. You have more than one. Well, and also, don't we reevaluate our goals after accomplishment anyway? to determine where we want to go following that? Oh, absolutely. For me, that was a life change all of a sudden. For you know, I can't speak for everyone, but from the Olympians I heard, and I know some uh, uh, personally, that you, know, you talk to them now versus then, and they're a different person. And I yeah. can relate to that. For, for me, it was, you know, before it was like this thing I'm trying to accomplish, and I'm, I'm putting in the effort on paying the price. I, you know, I'm missing this and I'm missing that. So I go practice. 
or I'm shooting in the rain and the bad winds, or I can get all that extra wind practice. So, you know, you shoot the hard days, it's easy on the easy days. And, and yeah. all those type of things like that. Um, but uh, it after that period, it changed everything. And the metals and the accolades became dramatically less important. And I, I can remember uh, talking with Mr. Wright one time, Tommy Pappas, it went to also went to our school, and he's a four-time Olympian and NCAA champion several times. But he came to speak at the school. Mr. Wright was telling me about this, and he brought his gold medal uh, from the NCAA championships. Yeah. And uh, and uh, one of the guys, one of the kids in the class that he was speaking, I wanted to see it, so he just tosses it to him. And these kids are handing it around the class, and Mr. Wright said, uh, "I about had a heart attack." <laughs> I'm watching those kids like a hawk, and to, to Tommy, it was no big deal. The medal wasn't that big a deal. And I was at a friend of mine's house uh, probably about two weeks ago, John Wheel. John Wheel uh, lives here in the Portland area, but John Wheel at one point was considered the best team shooter on the planet. I mean, he was number one on team shooting. He's a great guy. He's still with us. He's still around. He doesn't shoot anymore because his, his legs and hips bother him so bad. But I was out at this place, and I was looking around, and he's got, you know, uh, medals just uh, laying around. And uh, I started laughing. He looks at me, and I said, do you remember when those things actually meant something to us? And he starts laughing. He goes, yeah. And he goes, but the cool thing now is the medals don't mean that much. But he's, you know, it's like he said, I know the best in the world. And what's really cool is they know me. And I thought yeah. that was profound. That was very profound. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you're uh, the world champion individual, right? An, an individual no, for what? No, no. World championship titles are uh, team titles. Oh, all uh, team titles? Uh, okay. You, yeah, you can, you can argue. I won the, the uh, world championship at 800 yards, uh, 800 yards and 900 yards. And then I took the overall bronze medal. So, I, yes, I am the world champion at that at that time. And I'm not the reigning world champion. The, the world reigning world champion right now is a guy named Derek Rogers uh, out of New Mexico. Well, so okay, my, so my you, you at one time – okay, so were you an individual world champion then at that time? Is that what you are just saying? At a yard line. At yard lines, yes. But the and, reigning singular world champion, no. Uh, the uh, I claim the world championship title as a team title. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, we and we won the team team matches, so it made all of us uh, not the world champion, but all, a world champion. Okay, and so you have three team world champion titles. Mhm. Yep. And I have uh, five individual medals at world championships. I have a boatload of individual matches from around, you know, medals from around the world in South Africa and Europe and Ireland, Scotland, England, all over the place. Yeah. Okay, is there anyone else uh, from the U.S. that's ever had those individual ones that you have? I believe I've got more than any other single person, but there are some guys that have just, you know, the same kind of medals, the ugly medals at, at different yard lines. And, and Derek Rogers is the individual world champion, reigning world champion right now. I understand that our our matches are shot just like the Olympics are. They're shot every four years. Uh, the yeah. same countries show up. We'll have about 19 countries show up. There'll be about 500 shooters. 
that represent the best of you know any country that can still own firearms, and um, and so it's, it's shot basically the same as the Olympics, except we have more competitors in a single event. Right. Did, did that did that answer the question? Yeah. Um, so yeah. So what I was just saying was there was there any other Americans in those World Championships that you had won? Because since it's world, right? There's other countries that would win them, and I was just wondering if there was any other U.S. ones that uh, oh. won the ones that you won. Uh, at different times, yes. I understand there's 25 people on on a team on an international yeah. team, or at least a maximum of 25. And that's how many people we had. So, you know, some of these are shared type team titles are shared titles. Individuals, right. it, it medals and stuff are good. The individuals uh, in the uh, in England uh, in two in 2009, I can't remember how many individual medals we brought back, but it was several. It was uh, basically two weeks of shooting. And then four of us went up and shot a invitational matchup at Tullamore, Ireland. And we won the matchup there, although the Irish were really strong. We we, we did only beat them, I think, by five points. So the wow. U.S. team got that. Oh, yeah, Irish are good. They're some fantastic people, too. If you ever get a chance to go, I recommend it. But uh, And then in 2013, the World Championships were here in uh, – in, uh, uh, NRA Whittington Center down in Raton, New Mexico. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I told you some misinformation. Derek Rogers was world champion down there. Uh, and and his, his reign ended in, tw- in 2017 at the world championships up in uh, Toronto, Canada. And, and the next world championships will be 2021 down in uh, uh, Bloemfontein, South Africa. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, and I know you love South Africa. <laughs> I yeah I've been there. I went. I shot an invitational match down there, and uh, we showed up. I ended up winning the the whole thing, won the president's trophy, and everything. Had just a fantastic match. It was better than than you know, I could have hoped for, and it just worked out well. And then went on a nice safari afterwards, and and then you know had some nice experiences and came home. It was great. Even got to see the penguins down on the Eastern Cape. Well, wow, that's great. So how exciting. So I'm, uh, I can't wait for you to come to our conference in just a few weeks on June uh, 6th and 7th. And um, I'm pretty excited, or um, not excited, but I, I, I love where you're at in your life right now, Stan. I just have to tell you that. You know, I've known you longer than uh, some people. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was Save that one well. Yeah, I know. Since I'm only 49, it's just not as long as some others. <laughs> just throwing that out there, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. And, and, and basically, to put everything in a nutshell, the, the whole story of my life is 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 I didn't know I had it bad till I knew I had it bad. And, and but once I once I learned there was a better way, and and, uh, and I learned that I needed to get. I needed to make changes because the changes are something I needed to make. I couldn't wait for somebody else to make them. Right. Uh, and I chose to do it. I mean, I chose to make my life better. And I, tr- I learned to use what some people use as excuses. I, I, I learned to use them as a reason for, and then making those changes and to just surround myself by people that were doing something different or knew something different than what I grew up with and learning what, how they did it and is going on to accomplish things. 
And you know what? That's the the beauty, I think, of your story, Stan. Is you had a very tough childhood, if I might just say that, and sure. you didn't realize you had it tough. You thought everyone acted like that, pretty much, I guess. And mm-hmm. you well, turned your life around and decided, you know what? This isn't how life is supposed to be, and I'm going to make it better for me. And ultimately, Stan going around to different high schools and so forth and conferences like this one, you are making it better for others as well. Yeah. And it sounds like I'm this generous guy and, 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 but let me put it in, into my perspective. And, and yeah, it's one thing that the, the paradigm shift that I had, you know, with that first medal was that all of a sudden it's not about me. It was all the people that that gave it to me or, or gave me the chances, and I realized how important it was, you know, to share that and give it to others. It's like one thing you'll hear from people that are winners is they want to be around winners. Well, guess what? It's a small crowd, and they, so they will go out of their way to give people opportunities or, or try to help them to win because uh, winners love company, and yeah. so – for me, I'll guarantee you, I get as much, if not more, from those experiences going to schools and seeing those maybe half a dozen light bulbs light up. You'll see the kids. You'll see them. You might yeah. have 200 people there you're talking with, and half a dozen will all of a sudden, you know, they'll start slowly leaning forward, and they're staring at you, and you can tell they're hanging on everything you say, and you just see that light bulb click on, and yeah. you, you just realize they get it. They, they, they understand what I'm trying to say. And yeah. even if I can't fully relate to them, they relate to the fact that finally somebody's telling them how to win. Yeah. And, and you know what I think is awesome and um, is you give credit to um, people all along the way. Like Mr. Wright was one of you. You give credit to Mr. Wright for, for saying something that's helped you. At actually a time in crisis when you were in the military and you had to uh, head out and uh, it came to you again, what he had said. You know what I mean? So you kind of yeah. give credit to everybody along the way as well, which is awesome. Well, I don't believe in accidents in life. I mean, we have free will and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but I, I tend to think people are put in front of you for a reason. I'm not a fatalist, but I, I think that there's, whether it's on purpose or by a plan or by accident, people are put there for you to learn something from. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I learned the negative from one teacher and I learned the extreme positive from another. And I, I, from Mr. Wright, I learned a life lesson. And then there's, there's much to be said for that. I mean, think about the, the power that he, or just think about his legacy. And there, there's a lot more I can say about him, but uh, that guy with that little short, little question, if you will, and the way he posed it and everything, how many people are going to be alive because of what he said and did? Yeah. How many, those Marines all had families. Well, now, and then I, I, you know, I talk about it. I would lay on to the story. So how many people, in the greater scheme of things, how many, much of a ripple in this universe is he going to have an effect on? Or how big is the ripple going to be? Because I'm, 
you know, he has he you know, he passed away a while back, but I still talk about him. I tell people about him and use him as an example. And yeah. every one of us has the power to make that kind of change. If you're a victim of this or a victim of that, or even right. accomplish some great thing, you have a voice that others don't have. Right. You know, and that's what I see. I see also, it doesn't matter that you are a victim of domestic violence or a, you were abused as a child. You said, you know what? This isn't how life is going to go for me. That being said, Mr. Wright was an absolute, absolutely awesome guy. He was. <laughs> I kind of. I felt sorry for him when I was in his class because I think all he could do is laugh because I couldn't type worth nothing. And he was the typing teacher. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't have computers. We had Selectrics. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I think all he could do is just say, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Because I was so bad at it. But, you know, (laughs) he always had a good sense of humor. That's what I loved about him. He was an amazing man. Oh, I used to come in wearing those silly costumes. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the rabbit ear head and all that kind of thing. He, he, he was barely older than us. Oh, I thought he was a lot older than us. He had a daughter just younger than us. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was older. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously. But, uh, <laughs> now, he was one of my favorites. In fact, when uh, when I went back, I made it a point of going back and talking to everyone of those people that I could find, and I found most of them that I remembered there uh, in in England, and not a single one of them remembers a conversation, not one of them, and that just tells you what kind of people they were. That they were the kind that builds people up instead of tears them down. Yeah. But and I saved I saved Mr. Wright for last because I knew it was going to be a hard one. And I'll just yeah. do this. Yeah. You've you've heard you've seen me talk before, and I always have trouble with this, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, I went. I went back and talked with him. I went to his house and, and I called him up one day. I asked him if I could come over. I hadn't seen him in years because I was kind of avoiding him because I I knew what this the conversation was going to be rather difficult. So um, anyway, I went back over there and I I took my medals and stuff. This was uh, this is of course after the worlds and I shared them and he was real excited to hear that and everything. And and then I you know I told him. I, I told him, I said, you know, I wouldn't have accomplished any of this if I hadn't been for you. In fact, I wouldn't even be alive right now if I hadn't been for you. And we had quite a an emotional time. It was a good cry on both of our parts. And uh, I felt, you talk about getting a, a re- release, and maybe that's part of the whole secret, too, is is facing something and giving credit and making it not about yourself, making it about somebody else. That takes some sting out of some of this, but... Uh, I went. And I, I felt a lot more relieved after after leaving his house that day, and he, several months later, he passed away. So I almost missed the opportunity to go back and and tell him what a difference that he had made in my life. And I guess if I have a goal this this day, it would be, you know, to maybe one day have somebody come and say something like that. You really made a difference. You made you made a change for me that I you know that I may not might not have had. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, you're awesome, Stan. You know, I know that. And I I think you're absolutely wonderful. Um, Before we wrap up, is there anything that you would like to share with anybody? Um, Maybe, uh, you know, share with us who you work for. Don't you work for Savage or? I I don't work for them. I actually shoot for for several companies. The Savage Arms has has been a sponsor for ages. In fact, they gave us the opportunity, opportunities that we wouldn't have 
you know, we helped design all their Model 12 rifles on it. So I've shot their their firearms all over the planet, and I still use, I still shoot for them and shoot in competition. For use their stuff for hunting. I, I shoot for Bushnell and federal and federal ammunition, and, and uh, although I'm, I'm branching out on some of this, um, so I it's you know, RCBS all that uh, alliant uh, alliant powder all those. Uh, but then I'm branching out. I'm actually I'm taking a new course in life. I'm going to start doing product reviews and, and getting to go on some paid hunts and things like that. I know. Awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm so excited at the direction that your life is taking now. You know, in, in your old age. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're young, right? We're just babies. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> you start calling me old, I'm going to tell secrets. I know. <laughs> so I dare to say that. <laughs> for sure, for sure. <laughs> nope, you're young as uh, you're as young as you. <laughs> I'm 49, FYI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm an old guy at 61. Uh, no, so, you, you, I'm a lot you, older than you. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah. All right, sweetie. It was great talking to you. Um, do you have any upcoming um, talks besides the conference in June? Um, anything else? Well, I have some schools I'll be speaking at. Usually those aren't open to the, the public other than students. Right, right. right. security stuff. Well, but, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to do those. Uh, if anybody out there is, is listening and interested, I, I don't charge for going and speaking at these events. I just like to have my expenses covered. Because yeah. I'm not independently wealthy, I can't afford to go fly around the country to do that. But usually, if somebody will fly me, or if I'm in driving distance, I'll just drive there. No, no big deal. But uh, but uh, that and hotel and that kind of stuff pick me up. Just whatever whatever it takes. But I love talking to kids. I love having a positive effect on their life. I love telling them that they can win, that their dreams can come true. They don't have to settle for anything. That they can accomplish things. As yeah. you can gather, I'm not a big fan of participation medals and trophies and such. Right, right. You're amazing. Well, okay. I'm. Uh, I love talking to you, Stan, and I will be actually picking you up in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, the smart aleck at me wants to say all kinds of things, but I'll let it go. I, I, I am looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to meeting the folks down there and, and maybe yeah. hear some of the other stories. And I understand you got some workshops uh, signed up. Are yeah. set up down there, and yeah. for those that are listening, I would encourage them to attend. It promises to be a great event. Yeah, it's going to be a great event. June seventh and eighth, the Ivans at Tuacon in Ivans, Utah. It's going to be great. A domestic violence and abuse conference. It's going to be absolutely great. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Hey, um, I love you, and I will talk with you later, sweetie. All right. Love you, too. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I just want to thank Stan in closing um, for coming on my show tonight. I have known him for quite a few years, but I refuse to give up that number. And uh, he will be speaking uh, at our conference, uh, our it's called a save or save is the group that puts it on saving abuse and violence victims through education. And we'll be at Ivan's Utah starting at eight o'clock on Friday, the seventh, again, eight o'clock on Saturday, 
uh, 8 o'clock is the registration time, 8.30 is the orientation time, and 9 o'clock is the keynote speakers. So anyone who would like to come, you're more than welcome. You can go to savve.org for more information and for registration. I want to thank my listeners for listening tonight, and I hope you learned more about um, about child abuse, about where it can take you, and about dream making. <clears throat> um, you don't have to live uh, with the thoughts of being abused and sitting in your victimization, as um, Stan has spoken, and you can move forward and help others, and that's what he's doing. It's, I'm so proud of him. I can't tell you. I'm just beaming. Uh, we've been very good friends for a lot of years, and so this just uh, this just excites me. My prayer um, is to have, uh, I think I've said this again, a male victim on um, one of my shows here soon. Um, I can't find one yet, but I'm still working on it. Again, I might just have to go over the subject by myself and discuss it of things that I've um, reviewed. So anyway, I want you all to... Stay safe and have a great week. This is Shireen. Good night.